Welcome to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. On today's exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner, we'll be discussing mainly the Korean War. The Korean War was part of the United States policy following World War II to stop the spread of communism, and it's known as containment. So the reason the United States gets involved in the conflict on the peninsula of Korea and Southeast Asia is to contain the spread of communism which is known as containment. But to truly understand the Korean War, you have to back up a little bit and understand how communism got to the peninsula of Korea in the first place. Our first segment today, we will discuss the spread of communism to Asia in general. And then in part two, we'll discuss how it spreads to Korea and the, why at least the Korean conflict or the Korean War. And then the third part, we'll kind of wrap up and we'll touch on contributions of one of America's greatest heroes, a baseball player and fighter pilot that served during World War II and Korea War. His name is Ted Williams, possibly the greatest hitter to ever live. Enjoy this short break and we'll be back with part one to get into the spread of communism from Europe to Asia. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that theme song from a very popular TV show of the 1970s called MASH. MASH was filmed in the 70s, very popular, and it's actually set in the Korean War of the early 1950s. And I believe to this day, it's still the most SWAT series finale ever in TV history. So I hope you enjoyed that theme song. All right, well, let's get into the spread of communism. Well, communism goes um, goes from an idea into practice. The first major country to put communism into practice was was Russia, which becomes the Soviet Union following World War I in 1919. And then following World War II, communism moves from the Soviet Union to China. In other words, it goes from the largest country in Europe to the largest country in Asia. If you recall, the Chinese government failed to protect its citizens during World War II. If you remember, Japan invaded China and killed a lot of Chinese citizens. Following World War II, China goes through a revolution, and the United States is backing a gentleman by the the nationalist forces, as they're known, uh, and and they're led by a guy called Chiang Kai-shek. Soviets are backing the communist forces in China, and they are led by a guy, Mao Zedong. So there's a revolution, and different groups are vying for control, and Harry Truman is president in 1949 when this comes to a head. And Truman supports the nationalist and Chiang Kai-shek with weapons, with money, with help, but he chooses not to send the United States military in 
to stop the spread of communism in China. As a result, the much stronger national, uh, much stronger communist forces backed by the Soviet Union win the Chinese Revolution in 1949. What that means is communism spread from Europe to Asia in 1949. In 1950, things heat up in Korea. If you remember, during World War II, Korea was invaded and occupied by Japan. Following the war, the United States and the Soviet Union through the United Nations, UN coalition, they decide to split up the Korean Peninsula. The United States is backing a more democratic regime, and the leader of that is a gentleman by the name of Sigmund Rhee. He is being supported by the United States. The Soviet Union is backing the communist-led forces in Korea. They are supporting the gentleman by the name of Kim Il-sun, is who the communists are supporting. So what happens is between the two countries, the United Nations steps in, and they divide the Korean Peninsula into two, north and south, and they draw a DMZ, which is a demilitarized zone. The purpose of a DMZ is it's um, on the border between two hostile countries, and neither side is allowed to occupy that with their military. So the purpose of the DMZ is to keep conflict at a minimum. The United Nations draws a DMZ at the 38th parallel which is about halfway through the peninsula of Korea. So North Korea becomes communist, South Korea becomes more democratic, and the Soviets and the Chinese supporting North Korea and the Americans supporting South Korea. Almost immediately, both sides really want to reunite the Korean peninsula under one flag, the democratic or the communist flag. Truman is still president. It is now 1950. What happens in Korea? The summer of 1950, things start to heat up and Truman decides to support South Korea with weapons, with aid, just like he did in China. But by September, so in about three months, the North Koreans being backed by the communist Soviets and communist Chinese easily pushed the South Koreans well beyond the 38th parallel. And by the middle of September, the South Koreans are barely hanging on to Busan, which is on the very southeast corner of South Korea. So they're almost defeated. It's at this time... In September of 1950, that Harry Truman decides to use the United States military for the first time in Asia as part of containment, which is to stop the spread of communism. Under Douglas MacArthur, if you remember, he was the hero of the Pacific. He is the general that wins World War II in the Pacific and accepts Japanese surrender aboard the USS Missouri. So MacArthur, who's a very popular war hero from World War II, is sent to South Korea to help the South Koreans fight back against the North Koreans and their communist allies. So when the Americans show up, South Koreans are barely hanging on to the southeast corner of South Korea. That's in the middle of September. By the end of November, a couple of months later, the United States has not only pushed back the South Koreans out of South Korea, but instead of stop, stopping at the 38th parallel, the United States decides to keep on going. In other words, to reunify the Korean Peninsula under one flag, but instead of a communist flag, under a democratic flag. So the Americans and the South Korean coalition pushed the North Koreans far into North Korea, almost up to the Yalu River. The Yalu River is the border between China and North Korea. So at this point, the Chinese become very concerned because if the Americans and South Koreans didn't stop 
at the 38th parallel, there's no guarantees they'll stop at the Yalu River as well. In other words, they might invade China. So it's at this point that China decides to up its support of North Korea, and the Chinese government sends over 1 million men to the border along the Yalu River. And what they do is, with Chinese support and the North Koreans who are already being backed by the Soviets, they're able to push the Americans and the South Koreans back effectively to the 38th parallel, which is like a stalemate where it all began. This time, it is now 1953. Before that happens, a couple of key events take place that affect the Korean War. The first one is Truman fires MacArthur. MacArthur openly defies a couple of orders from Truman. Truman flies to Southeast Asia to meet with him to try to get him to do what he wants. He ignores the President of the United States, and Truman recalls him, which is very controversial. He's a very popular war hero from World War II. But he was not following orders from the president. So Truman recalls him, which effectively fires him. He replaces him. When MacArthur gets back to the United States and New York City, they throw him a ticker tape parade where thousands of Americans show up in support of Douglas MacArthur. He also speaks in Congress to a very good reception in Congress. So MacArthur is treated like a military hero because he is very popular. And Truman, by 52, is not as popular. He's one of the least liked presidents of his time at that time point. Truman decides not to run for a third term in 52. He could have, because that's when term limits went into effect. Term limits didn't go into effect until after he was president. So Truman's the last president who could have continued seeking three, four terms, as many as he wanted, but he chose not to seek another term in 52, mainly because he knew he wasn't going to win anyway. In 52, another war hero, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, who's the hero of Europe. He is elected president in 52, and he takes office January 20th, 1953. And one of the first things that Eisenhower does as president of the United States is he wants to get the United States out of the Korean conflict or the Korean War. Eisenhower calls a truce, and when we come back for part three, we'll discuss the truce, the peace treaty, and the wrap-up of the Korean War. We'll be right back after the short break. Over a 19-year career, Ted Williams compiled a tremendous case for earning the title The Greatest Hitter Who Ever Lived. Even though he missed five seasons in his prime serving in the military, Williams earned six batting titles, two triple crowns, hit 521 home runs, and had a lifetime 344 batting average and the highest on-base percentage in baseball history. Still, as the years passed, hitting 406 in 1941 would be recognized as his greatest feat, even by the man himself. I regard it now 10 times more an accomplishment than I did at that particular time because I thought, well, I'm going to hit 400 some more because I'm just getting started here. It has now been 75 years since anyone last hit 400. And during those 75 years, the game has changed considerably. I think it's a number that nobody even thinks about anymore. To be honest with you, I don't think anybody's out there thinking they're going to hit 400. It'll never be done again. When you look at the hitters nowadays, Altuve is probably the closest, and he's around 345, 350. And when you think about another 50-point jump, just to stay at 400. Even the very best hitters today strike out a pretty fair percentage of the time. It works against the infield hits, the blue pits, the balls in play that help you hit 400. And then you also have to walk a lot. And then you got to hit 400 in the official plate appearances that you get. That's a lot to ask. Do you think we'll ever see anyone hit 400 again? 
For my part, Peter, I don't think it can be done. I don't think someone's going to hit 400 again. I just think the state of relief pitching now with these yes. guys throwing 98 miles an hour, you don't see any worn-out guys. Well, all the analytics guys upstairs telling managers how to how yeah. to run their pitching staffs, you see one pitcher for two at-bats, and you don't see another pitcher for, for two at-bats again. I think it's, it's, it's almost, I think it is impossible to hit 400 now. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that short announcement on the historic career of the Boston Red Sox, one of the most famous Boston Red Sox Hall of Famer outfielder, Ted Williams. One of, if not the greatest natural hitter to ever live. And what's amazing about Williams is as much as he did, you know, he's the last guy to hit 400 in a season. He hit 406 in 1941, and that has not been matched since in, what, 80 years? But as great as that was, um, he's even a greater American because he served during World War II as a fighter pilot and during the Korean conflict, and he lost part or all of five years of his major league career to war service. And those five years were the more prime years of his career. He still hit lifetime 344 batting average, which is amazing. He still hit 521 home runs. He still played a 19-year career. He had a very long career. He um, is the oldest batting champion ever. He was won the American League batting champion at 40 years old. He's still had an illustrious career, but imagine if he didn't lose those five years, how good his numbers may have been. So, But when duty called, Ted Williams gladly gave up baseball. Unlike many people, he didn't just go over there and play baseball to raise morale of the troops. He was actually a fighter pilot in saw service. Ted Williams is a Hall of Fame baseball player, but in my opinion, even more Hall of Fame American. All right, well, let's get back. We left off with the truce. Once the truce is agreed to, they decide to negotiate peace. And what happens is the United States, under Eisenhower, agrees to withdraw all U.S. forces out of South Korea. And North Korea agrees not to invade South Korea. So it's kind of a stalemate. North and South Korea remains divided along the 38th parallel. Now, the peace treaty that follows a truce is never signed. Technically, the Korean conflict or the Korean War is still an open conflict because the truce was called in 53 the peace treaty has never been signed between north and south korea actually in 2010 north korea bombed south korea and the united nations kind of slapped them on the wrist to wrap up american presence in korea really goes from 1950 to 1953 about a two and a half year period united states keeps as far as the mission goes it was successful because it kept communism from spreading from north to south korea But the Korean War is still an open conflict to this day because there's never been a peace treaty signed between the two nations. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little bit about the Korean War. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to like this podcast, ring that bell so you're notified whenever we drop a new podcast, and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we will see you next week on Mr. Cornwell's Corner. 